Thanks for pressing play. And welcome to a very, very special episode. You ever have a conversation with someone and you think, wow, I'm so lucky to have been able to met that person and had that conversation? Well, that's how I felt about this one. Now, as you know, one of my favorite expressions is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. And if um, you're somebody who likes to think, then today's podcast is for you. And that's why I was so stoked. There's this thing uh, we've written about in Category Pirates we call uh, Thinker's High. And uh, I certainly experienced it in this conversation. I think you will, too. We dig into ancient wisdom for a modern America and specifically sick wisdom. We examine universal truths about connectedness and love, discuss racism and equality, struggle and being different, when to have empathy and when to fight back, and why looking at the intersection of religion and society is so powerful and a ton more. You see, our guest today is the legendary Dr. Simran Jeet Singh. Simran is the executive director of the Religion and Society Program at the world-famous Aspen Institute. He's also the author of a new national bestseller called The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. And in 2020, Time Magazine recognized Simran as one of the 16 most important people fighting for a more equal America. Now, I know one thing's for sure. You're going to love every second with this extraordinary man. Now, my friends at Acceleration Economy are hosting a legendary virtual event called the Digital CIO Summit. And it's not a stretch to say that some of the smartest people in the technology industry are going to be there. And particularly at a time like this, at a time of uncertainty, at a time of radical technology innovation and a category NATO possibility emerging, when the world's or when some of the world's smartest people are willing to share their thinking with you, that's an incredible opportunity for all of us. At the CIO Summit, which takes place on April 4, 5, and 6, you'll learn from legendary technology leaders like FedEx's Rob Carter. And uh, he might be one of the highest profile, longest serving uh, CIOs in America. If he's not, I'd like to know who is. ASU's Lev Ghanek and Goya Foods' Svajit Basu and many others as they share how they are harnessing the power of technology to grow and scale their businesses and manage uncertainty. And I will also be speaking, but please don't let that stop you from participating. April 4, 5, and 6, and registration is free at aeciosummit.com. April 4, 5, and 6, aeciosummit.com. Register now. And if you didn't know, you're listening to Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different, and we are the Real Dialogue Podcast, or some people call us an oddcast, for people with a different mind. So get your mind in a different place. And hey-ho, let's go. All right, well, it sure is a pleasure to meet you. Great to meet you as well, yeah. 
And uh, I've been fascinated by you since the minute your folks reached out. And so maybe start with this. What is sick wisdom? Oh, uh, good. Good starting point. No one's no one's starting there. Well, I figured before. let's just go um, straight to it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll start anywhere you exactly. want, but yeah, no, this is no. I appreciate it. I you know, sick wisdom. I mean, it's like it's like any other wisdom. I think it's these experiences and insights that people before us have have developed, um, and we have access to if we want. Um, and and one of our choices, I think, is is do we want to uh, learn all the lessons the hard way, or or do we want to uh, step into um, these these treasures that are already available to us, and so so sick wisdom in particular um, is is the insights and experiences that come in through uh, sick philosophy, sick tradition. Uh, it's it's the tradition that I was born into, um, and, and in some ways, I think didn't really learn to appreciate these ideas until until I got older and, and started started meeting real challenges in my life. So. Sikh wisdom really draws from philosophies from a from a community that was born in South Asia, the Punjab region, um, and um, it's something that's really given me some answers as I try and grow up here in here in the U.S. today. And so, Simran, you mentioned that it sort of you decided to dig back into um, some of these teachings at a at an important moment. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Can you tell me about what that moment was and why it sort of brought you back to? kind of this ancient wisdom and the, these religious teachings? Yeah, you know, there have been a few moments in my life where I've, I've really, like many of us, uh, you struggle, uh, you have difficulty, you don't know where to go, uh, and you lean into uh, some of those systems that, that have been introduced to you over time. And so for me, the, the, the big moment was uh, when I was in college. Um, the terrorist attacks of 9-11 had just happened. Um, you know, I felt distraught as an American. Um, I was growing up in Texas at the time and I went to college in Texas too. And you know, what I, what I felt around me was people would see my turban and my beard and my brown skin, and they would start to see me as their enemy. And so I felt attacked as an American. And I also felt attacked as a Sikh and trying to figure out how to live in a world where people saw me in a way that was very different from how I saw myself. Um, and, and having to figure out, I think, um, in this experience, something that a lot of people from the margins have to figure out early. And I think what all of us have to figure out over time, and that is how do we, um, recognize our worth internally? How do we see our own dignity so that we're not governed by the assumptions and perspectives of the people around us? And so that, that really was, I mean, it's, it sounds easy. Uh, we all, we all talk about it in a way, uh, but when it comes time to live it, it's it's so difficult. It's so complicated, uh, and it's really it's really hard to enact into our daily lives. And so that's that's what sick wisdom uh, really started to serve as as foundational to me, helping me understand well, what are what are the values that I care about most, and and how am I going to have daily practices that help me become the kind of person I want to be, rather than staying as the kind of person that people see me as. And Simran, why, you know, what was it about 9-11 and the aftermath? I mean, obviously, um, I was in the United States too, and I lived through all of that, and I felt, um, I think, the pain and suffering that many of us felt on that day and after that day, and as somebody who spent a tremendous amount of time in New York and 
had been there very recently, um, shortly before it happened. And I know, of course, now you live in New York. But what was it, you know, what was it about 9-11 that maybe was different for you than it was for somebody like me? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, the, the, there were there were many aspects in, in the way that you're describing it, even uh, so many aspects of it were shared. And it was, uh, in many ways, a, a collective trauma for us as a country. I mean, especially um, within our generation, it was the first time that it ever felt like it was possible to be attacked on our soil, right? All the wars that we had fought, um, we had the privilege of, of fighting elsewhere. And so the threat never really felt real until this moment. And I think all of us felt impacted uh, by the possibility, by the vulnerability uh, that we could be attacked here at any point. And then we weren't as safe as we necessarily assumed we were. Now, what, what's, what I think is different for, for me in this experience is that because of my religious practice, uh, because of the way that I look, both in because of uh, my ethnic background and, you know, my skin tone, but also because of my religious tradition and, you know, some of our visible aspects that we choose to wear. You know, there's the turban, uh, there's uncut hair, including facial hair. Um, it just meant that in this moment of extreme difficulty for our country, um, of extreme anger um, and extreme violence, uh, I, all of a sudden, I and people belonging to my community uh, fell into the stereotype of how Americans saw their enemy. And so that, that I think is, is partly what felt so difficult in this moment, uh, that on the one hand, I felt like I was an American and belonged here and, and was going through the same trauma as everyone else. And at the same time, so many people around me, um, you know, my fellow Americans would look at me and be like, no, no, you're not one of us. You're one of them. And, and that black and white thinking and the, the racialized perspective, I think it really put us uh, in, a, in a difficult place as a community where, you know, we just weren't sure how to stay safe. And, and we really had to start thinking about um, what does it look like for us to, to become a part of this society, even though we've been here for decades and, and, and still haven't been able to, to fully integrate. And of course, it was horrible that uh, so many six attacked uh, uh, the World Trade Center on 9-11. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, this is the crazy it's, it's part I don't understand, this, right? <laughs> right? Which is, <laughs> I have Middle Eastern friends, spent a lot of time there, uh, Pakistani friends, uh, Indian friends. One of my closest friends in the world is, is Indian. And of course, I, I grew up in the technology industry. And so we have lots of Indians and Pakistanis. And I was with a company that was headquartered in uh, Israel. And so... But one of the things that struck me after 9-11 was uh, there was a whole lot of hate directed at a whole lot of ethnic groups that unless I misread the whole situation, literally, their people, like, it's not even like, oh, some Indian folks or Pakistani folks or whatever. They had nothing to do with any of it. it not even in the same universe. <laughs> like, in a completely different part of the world. And so this is, um, I want to talk, of course, with you about racism, but, but the thing about this that is even more perplexing is why would 9-11 equal I hate sick people? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's ignorance, purely. And, you know, one of, one of the funny things that I, it's, it's a story that I share in the book, which, which I find so ridiculous. Uh, when, my, when my uncle first moved to this country and uh, he was in Kentucky, 
um, you know, he walks in and, and he tells somebody, you know, I'm, I'm from Punjab. Um, and, and that person says, oh, I have a friend from Egypt. Do you know them? And it just sort of speaks to our cultural ignorance of, you know, we don't really know what geography is. These aren't even the same continents, uh, let alone bordering countries. And so oh, didn't, didn't your, your point, ancestors build so the pyramids? <laughs> I mean, it's what the so fuck? It is, it is so bizarre how we work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what the, it, it does make you wonder, like, um, what are we teaching in school? Like you can't even get sort of which part of the world <laughs> this is never mind. And anyway, I, it just, it boggles, um, it boggles the mind, but you know, to ask the obvious question, you felt different in your own country after nine eleven. Is that's essentially what I think you're telling me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it was. I mean, it was. It was. In some way, it was eye opening, right? Like we had considered ourselves American, and and now we were being told we weren't. But in other ways, and it's not like this was the first time we dealt with racism. It's not the first time people told us to go back to where we came from, or you know that that we that we assumed that we were foreigners or whatever it was. And so, yeah, in, in some ways, the, the sharpening of the assumption of our foreignness uh, really put, put into stark contract, contrast for us um, what, what our place was in society. And I think that having to grapple with that uh, as a young man, um, 18 years old, I mean, that, that really uh, shaped my understanding of, of where I fit in and how I, how I wanted to work for justice in this country. And so it seems to have, if I sort of understand your history, 9-11 and the aftermath of it does seem to have sort of changed your trajectory. Is that is that how you think of it or how do you think of it? I do. I mean, in, in some ways, um, you know, again, going back to this point of um, me seeing myself as American up until this moment, in many ways, I was like a lot of other American kids, right? Like I cared about sports. I didn't care about school. Um, I cared about my friends. I didn't care about studies at all. And, and suddenly with this, with this shift in experience, I mean, it wasn't so sudden, but part of what happens is I, I start to become curious in trying to understand what's happening to myself and to my community. Um, and I, I actually also start to become, uh, pretty committed to serving these communities and, and easing their suffering and making sure that, you know, nothing like this ever happens again. And so, that really did shape my trajectory. Um, I started to become more interested in school. Uh, as I started to become more interested in school, um, I really found ways to to work within this world in ways that would address the issues that I was facing and that I was observing. And that's that's really sort of the the direction that I decided to take my life in a way that I would have never imagined uh, prior to prior to nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Now you used a phrase that sort of caught my ear, you said, um, easing suffering. And there are a lot of uh, religious scholars who I have heard say, I have read say, that um, religion, I've heard it said in particular for Christianity, but religion in, in general, in some ways is a framework for dealing with suffering. And so I'm curious is there a connection for you between sort of the sort of wisdom, the religious part of your life and the wanting justice for fellow six in America or how do those things or do they connect for you? 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know for a lot of religious folks, the two don't necessarily uh, go hand in hand, but but for me and, and in my reading of, of Sikh philosophy, uh, they absolutely are interconnected. Um, and the basic point, and, and this is again, something I try and share through the book, uh, it's, it's one that I think could actually enrich all of us. You know, it doesn't have to be a religious perspective per se, or even an exclusively Sikh perspective, but I think there is wisdom in this for all of us. And so I'll, I'll share what that looks like for, from my view. And that is if we start from a place of recognizing our interconnectedness, the oneness that binds us all together. And you can think of that in all sorts of different ways. It doesn't necessarily need to be spiritual, uh, but it could be spiritual too. Um, but if, if you start from a place of oneness, uh, that inspires uh, a feeling of connectedness, which in, in English we would often describe as love, right? The more connected you feel to something, uh, the more love you feel for that, that same thing or that same person. Um, and so that one, oneness leading into love, um, then engenders and inspires action. Um, you know, we, we know this through our own relationships. When people we love are hurting, we show up for them. Uh, we move into action. We want to reduce their suffering. And I think that approach, um, one where you start from this place of connectedness and move into love and then service, uh, that is that is what produces justice. And, and so from my view um, and from the perspective of Sikh philosophy, at least as I understand it, uh, and this is not exclusive to Sikh philosophy, uh, other traditions and wisdom uh, systems offer this too, um, that if you start from a place of connectedness and love, you, you really, you, you very naturally uh, end up with action, with service, with justice. And, and it's, it becomes really difficult to disentangle the two when you approach it in that way. So I'm trying to go through the ladder in my head as you're talking, connect. If so I acknowledge our oneness slash connectedness that can lead to, um, that strong sense of connection leads to a sense of love. And it's from there you say that action comes and in your case, advocacy and, and trying to make things different. Is that, is that how you want me to process this tra transaction? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think that's, that's right on. I, I think it's fairly straightforward and, we can all digest this in a way because it's it's very intuitive. That's what I like about it. It's really natural. Uh, and we actually all experience this within our own worlds right now. And this is, I think, the promise of this approach, right? Like part of what we feel in our lives is that the height of human experience uh, comes through these moments of um, love and service. And, and what this model offers us is actually we could have that experience at all times. It doesn't have to be limited uh, to these small micro uh, moments within our lives um, and within our days. I mean, our, our days could be filled with these if we approach it in this way. So love and service are very, very big words, um, very powerful words. And so is there something about the sick wisdom or sick teachings that you want me to know about those two words that maybe I wouldn't know because I wasn't uh, raised sick and it's not what I practice? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I, I love the question. Um, it indicates that you might have uh, read the book and, and you're, you're leading me into, <laughs> into ideas that, that I'm really excited about. 
I think both of them, part of, part of what I want to offer is that the way we think about these concepts within the U.S. today and within the Eng English language even um, is very limited. I think, you know, for instance, uh, one of the ideas that I share in the book is that in so many languages, uh, including my native language, Punjabi, there are many different words for love. Uh, and they speak to uh, different valences, different kinds of experiences, different depths and emotions. Uh, and the fact that we only really use one word for love uh, in the English language uh, indicates that we often are missing uh, some of the aspects or qualities um, and the nuances that we're trying to share. Uh, we simplify, right? We've oversimplified love and, and we've done the same with service, right? If I asked you what, what service is, I mean, it's, it's pretty much um, helping other people, right? It, it, that's, that's the extent of it. And, and part of what I would want to offer, um, and, and, you know, this speaks to the sick view of Seva in a way that I think um, could really benefit the world if, if folks were receptive to this idea. Service can be helping others, but Seva, when done right, can also help you. Uh, you can reduce the suffering of the world. And also, when it's selfless, when it's rooted in love, when it's other-oriented, it can bring you more happiness by reducing your ego. It can do spiritual work for you uh, as an individual just as much as you're, you're showing up for other people. And so one of, one of the interesting conversations we're having culturally is, well, you know, I am supposed to help you because I have privilege and you don't. Um, and part of what happens through this is um, we end up inflating our own egos because we're essentially saying, oh, I'm a good person because I'm doing the right thing. And not necessarily, but often that's, that's what ends up happening. And we feel good because we help other people feel good. Uh, but we don't really have the practice of taking that action and using it to improve ourselves at the same time. Uh, but just being a little bit more intentional about here is what I'm doing in a way that it's going to decenter myself, right? I'm not going to make this about me. Here's what I'm doing to practice love uh, so that I become a more loving person. Uh, I think that is more sustainable. I think it's more nourishing. And I think ultimately it creates more justice in the world for all of us. Hmm. So I love this theme. Uh, service is a gigantic word for me. Um, and it's not one we hear a lot. Um, I've had many folks say to me, generals and war journalists and many others, um, that in the one of the weird things about the United States is as a country, we ask no service of our people. Yeah. So if I contrast it to, you know, I have my next door neighbor here is is from Switzerland the country I've been to, I have friends there, wonderful, wonderful place. And that's a country where there seems to be, of course, I'm not Swiss, but a strong sense of country and a strong sense of service to country. Um, and uh, I have many, many friends in Israel, very similar, maybe even stronger in my experience in Israel, probably for obvious reasons. But And yet the United States offers tremendous opportunities. I'm an immigrant to this country from Canada and not like Canada is a horrible place to be. It's a wonderful place to be. So it's not like I was running some running away from some terrible oppression. But the interesting thing is the United States offers opportunities that I think even Canada cannot 
offer in some ways. And yet, I've been in Silicon Valley and I've been in the tech world for 35 years. And, and one of the things I find strange is many of the greatest entrepreneurs I know and have worked with are not American-born. As a matter of fact, I right. work with more non-American-born tech Silicon Valley entrepreneurs than I have native-born American entrepreneurs. And I, and I wonder about this a lot. And I don't have any data in front of me. Maybe you do. But it seems to me that in some ways, and of course it's a generalization, that that native-born Americans don't necessarily take advantage of the opportunity of what it truly means to be an American like um, some of us uh, more recent immigrants. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, sometimes, I, I mean, I've, I've made similar observations and I wonder to some degree, is it is it a question of infrastructure, right? Are we, are we really um, investing in educating our young people in this country uh, in a way that produces um, quality results. And, and I think, I mean, if you look at the metrics, the answer is probably no. Uh, we were much better at education before. I mean, along uh, the the global metrics of, of education, and, and, and we're not in it. And that's, that's the reality of it. Uh, but I think, I think another part of it that you're getting at, which I think is really interesting, um, is the, the tendency of the human mind to take for granted, uh, what's, what's available to them. And, and I'll say, I mean, it's, it's true for me too. My parents came here as immigrants. They worked really hard. Um, they really appreciated the opportunities that they had. Um, and I work hard and I appreciate the opportunities, but it's not the same. Like I, I, I like, it's not even within the same realm yeah. to be able to compare. It can't be uh, that right? experience. Yeah. And that's why yeah, they no, came so here I, I was so you. that you wouldn't know the level of struggle they had. I'm assuming that was a huge motivator. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and I try, I mean, I try to be mindful of it, but it's, it's not ingrained in me in the way that it's ingrained in them. It's not, I, I can't appreciate the depth of the experience because it's not my experience and I've had a different kind of life in which some things have been challenging but but not the same things that you know you're describing here and, and that they've experienced too and so yeah I think I think there's there's something really interesting about that as we think about what it means to cultivate a sense of appreciation uh, for for the gifts that we've been given in our lives and as it relates to service, I, I often wonder, you know, uh, General Stanley McChrystal, who's been been on a few times, one of the things he talks about is we need a Peace Corps inside the U.S. so that young people at 17, 18, 19, 20 years of age have an option of serving their country, having the country pay them to do it. But, uh, you know, um, God bless Jimmy Carter, but I think he's taught us all the power and symbolism of of one person with a hammer. And so it's interesting that the United States gives us so much and asks literally nothing of us. And there isn't even a, a program where if you said, hey, I want to volunteer for my country, there are certain programs you can get involved with, sure, but there's not like a blanket American program that would sort of harness that desire or, or even cultivate a service desire. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I think, you know, I wonder how much of that is due to our sense of American exceptionalism, um, meaning that, you know, we're so busy congratulating ourselves for how good we are and, and fixing other people's problems, right? Like if you look at our foreign policy, exactly what we're describing, like why, why do we have a Peace Corps for other countries when we have so many problems of our own? And it's not to say that we shouldn't be serving in these other countries, but I, I do think we are 
reticent and, and even in denial about the challenges that we face internally, right? There's this arrogance that we have everything figured out. Um, but, but I think two things happen then, right? Like you're, you end up becoming unaware of I- intentionally unaware, um, of the shortcomings that you have and the opportunities you have to grow. And I think that's, um, at least from a spiritual perspective, I, I think that's a real problem. Um, but I think the other thing that happens is, uh, you let these problems fester, um, the problems inside while you're tending to other people's issues um, and, and not addressing your own, um, those those issues fester and become worse. And then they become social ills, um, collective issues. And, and so I think that's that's part of what we're seeing in our society today. And, and so I, I love that you're bringing it up. It's so important. Thank you. Now, to sort of tilt a little bit back towards racism, um, let me bounce this off you and, and see uh, how it lands. I've been fascinated since I was a little boy with the sort of sources of racism. And we've had a lot of experts on this podcast talk about uh, research into where it comes from and why it exists and so forth and so on. But I'm curious how you might react. When I distill it, at least one of the things I distill it down to in part is a simple primordial human ape kind of a – uh, mentality, which is um, if you and I are two a- a- apes in the jungle or the forest and there's only so many bananas, if you have more bananas than I do, I have less bananas than you do. And so I got to beat you up to get to the bananas and vice versa. And that's kind of how our, how we're trained. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, and I know this is probably an oversimplification, but I, how much of it is just a scarcity mindset? That is to say, oh, well, if I'm not as sick, and I see sick people doing well and being successful, I go, well, fuck, why are those people wearing turbans taking all my bananas? Yeah. How does that land with you? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think it is a big, um, it's a big issue. And, you know, to be clear, um, tribalism is not new, right? The The fact that we divide ourselves into different groups um, that we have in groups and out groups, like that's, that's part of who we are. And that's not just human beings. That's, uh, the Animalia kingdom too, right? Like this is, this is how we work. Um, but I think the challenge comes, um, when you take a scarcity framework, um, and an ownership framework, uh, and apply it to, to the tribes, right. And say, we're in competition. Um, whoever gets more gets more. Whoever gets more is better, uh, and whoever gets more is then in charge. And and so, I mean, you could take these big frameworks and terms like capitalism and colonialism and hierarchy and supremacy, and and you can sort of see how this plays out. But you could also like step back from those those frameworks and just say, yeah, this is this is exactly what we see in the communities around us, where like. If I'm looking at how my kids are growing up in school, like so much of it is you need to do this, not because it'll make you happy, but because if you don't do this, then somebody else will and you're going to miss your opportunity, right? Like if you don't get into this college, that's bad for you because everybody else is going to get into college and there's going to be less for you and your life is going to be harder. So we've sort of structured a world in which we constantly have to be in competition with each other because if we don't, we know we're going to lose out and then we become wired constantly uh, feel like there is scarcity and like there isn't enough for everyone. And I, it's, it's such a, um, 
it's a system that creates a lose-lose, right? Ultimately, everybody loses in, in this worldview. And I think shifting over um, to a to a model that's not just about uh, abundance, but also about generosity, uh, I think then produces a, a world in which you're not stuck um, and, and fighting against other people, but instead you're giving. And, and we all know that from, you know, behavioral psychologists and onwards, like generosity is what leads to happiness as opposed to the this, this scarcity approach. <laughs> yes. And as somebody who tries to practice radical generosity on a regular basis, I can attest the joy from it is is radical. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, whether it's dropping a 20 bucks into the Starbucks tip jar or more recently, my wife Carrie and I sent a, a pretty meaningful check to uh, Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières to continue to help them in the Ukraine and now with this horrible um, earthquake in, in, in Syria and in Turkey and so forth and so on. And, and, and knowing that you can't solve the war and ease that suffering and you can't ease the suffering of so many in, in the example of Turkey and of Syria, but you can, in this case, write a check to people who are on the ground, who you know to be doing good work. Um, there is, there is real joy in that. Um, and there's real joy in giving the 20 bucks at the Starbucks. And there's real joy in taking extra time with a child that you love to help them through a tough thing. Um, this morning I was on LinkedIn with a young marketing <clears throat> uh, agency owner in Belgium and he was struggling with some, some category design concepts and we were, we were going back and forth and I said, just call me. <laughs> we spent and I don't know this guy from a hole in the wall. I, I met him on social media on LinkedIn because he became familiar with our work and so forth and so on. And I spent half an hour on the phone kind of helping to unpack some of the thinking he was going through. And I'm not sending him a fucking bill, <laughs> right? Yep, yep. And so whether it's charitable things that we do, you know, I live in Santa Cruz, California. We participate in beach cleanups all the time, do those sorts of things. You know, there's a whole, it's a spectrum of giving, of generosity, right? But when we can do something generous on a fairly regular basis, wherever you can play on that spectrum, it, it does change our world. I, I, let me sound, this may sound silly to you. You know, I'm somebody that can experience sort of wide ranging positive and negative emotions on a fairly regular basis. And I can be in a dark place. I'm somebody for whom the pain and suffering of the world can feel very crushing to me. And when I'm mm -hmm. feeling that mm -hmm. way, I just literally try to walk out my front door and go do something nice. Yeah. And yeah. you feel better. I'm, you I'm can't solve way, yeah. the Ukraine problem, but you can say hi to somebody as you walk by on the street. You can help some, you know, there's, there's a, if you walk out your front door, there's an opportunity to help somebody with something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, when you were getting into the, the generosity piece, I mean, so often we feel like it's not enough if we're not fixing the world's problems. And, and we think, well, well, what do I have to give? And the reality is it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a world changing action. It could be showing up for your friend. And when they tell you what, what challenge they're facing at work, talking through it with them. I mean, th those kinds of things are, that's generosity too. You're giving of your time, you're giving of yourself giving of your spirit. I mean, it, uh, you're giving love, right? And so I think that that experience of learning 
every day to to find ways to give and to find new people to give to. Like it's it's such a powerful um it's a, it's such a powerful way to transform from this scarcity mindset into this gen because you, you just you feel better, you appreciate people more and you start to be able to empathize with people across difference, right? Like you you start from your college best friend who's struggling with their spouse and and need someone to talk to and and eventually you're thinking about people across the world in Turkey who are suffering from an earthquake and and you have empathy for them now too because you've you've developed this muscle. So I, I I agree with you that it's so important and it's something that we all can do in in big and small ways every day. And so what what can we learn from sick teachings around how to shift from this scarcity mindset which is at least you tell me if you think about it differently, but at least one of the pillars of racism into an abundance and then generosity mindset. Like what, what, what does the sick wisdom teach us about that? Yeah. You know, one, one thing that I'll share that I think is really simple and also really profound and profoundly different from how we think about this in our world today um, is that you you can only develop these qualities. You can only shift your mindset with daily practice. Um, there are all sorts of ways in which we tell ourselves, you know, I, all I need to know is understand that this is how I want to be, um, and and suddenly I'll just become that way. And and we all know that that's not how life works. Uh, that we're tricking ourselves, and when we do that, I'm like it's it's a beautiful intention, but we also have to recognize that we've been wired in certain ways that our society is structured in certain ways uh, to suck that out of us. And so we are essentially, when we're doing this, it's not like we're just building on a clean slate, on a clean slate, right? It's not like we're just starting from fresh. We actually have to do some uh, unlearning, some deconditioning, and that takes a lot of work. Uh, we have to be intentional. We have to be purposeful about digging ourselves out of this hole uh, as we as we decide to build something new. And so I think the daily practice uh, is critical in a way that doesn't feel great. Um, and we all have enough to do. We have so much on our daily agendas and who has time for one more thing. But I think unless we start to prioritize uh, the small acts like these every day, and it doesn't have to be a 20-minute commitment. It could be one or two minutes to begin. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Uh, but without that practice, uh, at least this is what Sikh philosophy teaches us, without practice, None of these ideas matter. They, they never come to fruition until we, we learn to embody that. And would this be like what some people might call prayer or meditation? Or would this be uh, reading some of the ancient wisdom and some of the great texts? Or how would, how would one begin to practice the wisdom of a Sikh, whether or not we were Sikhs ourselves? <laughs> Let's yeah. say I want some of this wisdom in my life on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say any of any of these virtues that that we aspire to, um, you know, like generosity. It's it's something that is um, upheld within Sikh philosophy, but it's in so many other traditions too, and and secularly too. Like this is just something we all know is is something we should uphold. And so, I think I think where, where I would start with any of these um, is to start uh, from a place of what is a small thing I can do every day. And holding myself accountable to that. So if it's generosity, what is what is one thing that I'm going to give? What is how can I spend five minutes to give something every day? And, it, and if that feels hard, um, maybe you can maybe you can narrow it down even further. You know, when I started 
a practice like this, I would tell myself every week I would either uh, donate time, uh, about an hour, or I would donate money. And, you know, 20 bucks, nothing, nothing big. But just that intentionality behind, okay, every week I'm going to do this. You create a discipline, you create a habit, you remind yourself that you're doing it. Uh, you hold yourself accountable until it's ingrained in your brain. And then you move on to the next thing. So that's that's a way to do generosity, but you could do the same thing for um, honesty. You could do the same thing for uh, fearlessness. You could do the same thing for creativity. Whatever whatever the virtue is that you're aspiring towards, I think start start small with a daily practice, but make sure that it's make sure that it's something you you don't give up on because that's how you form your habits. Thank you for that. And I know you're a person who's experienced some pretty horrible. Uh, racism and uh, threats and and things along those lines. And a lot of your work, a lot of your book seems to be kind of teaching us how to walk certain lines, like how to be empathetic and loving, but not, I don't know what the right words to use are, like not be a pushover. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm leading to a question. I saw, I saw this online not long ago. There is a guy who is, I don't know, probably in his late 40s to mid 50s um, at a baseball game, baseball or football, I can't remember. And the person is filming from behind on their, their phone. And there's a young, younger guy and his girlfriend sitting in front of him. And the younger guy is getting drunk and he's being really loud. But he starts to be pretty obnoxious and he starts to say some pretty horrible things. Anyway, not your usual fan yelling, which is, as somebody who loves to go to sports games, I'm okay with fancy yelling. This was fairly different. Anyway, so a sort of a, a back and forth starts with the with the younger guy below the older guy. And then it escalates, and both of them are white. And the younger guy calls the older guy the N-word. And it doesn't appear the older guy thought about it because it happens very quickly within like a nanosecond of the N-word coming out of the younger guy's mouth, the older guy punches him in the face and uh. knocks him down. So in that moment, had I been the older guy, the likelihood I would have punched that younger guy is really high. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so tell me what sick philosophy teaches us in like a, a moment like that where something horrible is escalating this guy's behaving in a way that the vast majority of human beings would say is completely is unacceptable and then he crosses a line that i think the vast majority of us in the united states understand completely and he gets whacked for it yeah yeah i mean i'll, I'll start from a place where many people might not expect um and that is Within Sikh philosophy, the teaching is when the conditions call for it, it's it's appropriate to fight back. And so, you know, you might hear me on this podcast so far talking about love and service and all the things that sound touchy-feely, um, but but I, I, I'm a parent. Um, I discipline my kids. I mean, it's not corporal, um, but it's I'll put them in timeout if they're misbehaving. And that's not because... I want to punish them or I enjoy them being sad. Uh, it's because I love them and I, and I need to hold them accountable so that they learn. And, and I think the same is true uh, in situations like this where people are crossing the line 
And in our tradition, the teaching is it's not just that it's okay to fight back. It's actually our responsibility as spiritual beings uh, to stand up and, 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 and stand for justice. And so going back to this conversation that we started with about feeling connected to people, part of that means feeling empathy and recognizing that the world is unjust, that there are people who take advantage of other people, uh, and to truly show our love for them is to, is to show up for them and to fight back. And so that's, that's the, the unexpected answer in that situation. Now, I'll also say that in moments like these, I, I try other means when possible uh, to diffuse, to de-escalate, uh, to help people see uh, how, how they might be unfair or hurtful or harmful. But, but I'll also say, you know, I, I, our tradition teaches us not to shy away from moments like these and then instead to step up and, and to be ready to, to help uh, in times of need. Yes. And this is one, I'm so glad you said everything you just said, because this is one that doesn't get talked about in these kinds of conversations, whether it's about religion or spirituality or mindfulness <laughs> or all the new huggy, cuddly, West Coasty, spiritually <laughs> stuff that is uh, becoming more and more popular, <laughs> which on balance <laughs> I think is good, but there's a flip side to it. One of my heroes is George Carlin, and he talked about shortly before his death what he called the pussification of America. <laughs> and uh, one of my favorite expressions is, do not confuse my kindness for weakness. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. That is, I mean, people, I, I hear that criticism often, and I hear it even, even among six who say, you know, there's there's real hate in this country. We face it. We get a fair share of it. In fact, the recent FBI reports say that Sikhs are uh, second most targeted religious group in America and most disproportionately. I mean, compared to in, in relation to the size of our population, so we we get a we get a good portion of uh, of hate in this country, and consistently you will see that Sikhs will respond with love and kindness. And I appreciate that. And I'm an advocate for that. And I think that is uh, really important. And I try to do the same thing, honestly, in these moments. Um, but I do think there is a um, a bias within that. And this goes back to the to the very simplistic understanding of love in this country, where people say, oh, you're so loving. Um, and then they get confused when in some situations, I'm, I'm ready to fight back. In fact, one of my... Um, one of my comedy heroes and I got in an argument about this. Norm Macdonald was one of my favorite comics of all time. And, um, and there was a kid who was a being good, bullied. A good Canadian a, boy. I saw him in Toronto before he made it. <laughs> so, and Jim so Carrey funny. for that matter. I mean, but those are, those are different oh, conversations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those are, those are big, those are big ones. No, um, I, I saw Jim Carrey and Norm Macdonald uh, play small comedy clubs in Montreal and Toronto when I was a kid. I used to love to see live that's comedy. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, two of the best, two of the best to ever do it, actually. Oh, and I, I, and I saw Norm towards the end of his career here in San Jose, and it was just, and I got to shake his hand and stuff and say, hey, Norm, good Canadian boy, been a fan your whole career. And, yep. you know, it was yep. really, it was a nice moment to have. And of course, we miss him now. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt your story. I just love Norm MacDonald, too. No, that's okay. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I put out a video of a sick kid being bullied and, and basically he fought back and I was proud of him for fighting back. 
and and Norm put up a tweet that said or responded to the video and said, um, "Fighting back is. I mean, it's a shame what happened to the kid, but fighting back is never acceptable." And um, <laughs> trying to be um, true to to my own perspectives, but also hopeful that Norm would actually be my friend one day. <laughs> I, I responded to him in a way that was basically like explaining explaining my position and was like, "Hey." Like, here's here's why I think it's okay, and and I think where where we ultimately landed, and we we disagreed, we went back and forth a few times, but my read on it is um, that he was speaking speaking from a place of privilege. Like, if if he had ever been in a position where somebody attacked him simply because of who he was, he would understand that actually shying away from it, ducking down. Like, yes, it's the right answer in some cases, and I've done that, and I think it's appropriate. But in some cases, there there have to be conditions in which that's acceptable. I mean, otherwise, and and I mean, I think this is these can be extreme examples. Like, what what are you going to do if somebody walks into your house um, and is and is robbing it and has a gun has a gun to your? I mean, are you going to fight back or are you going to? I mean, you you can't take this. I I don't think it's reasonable to take an extreme pacifist perspective um, and to say there there's no context in which it is appropriate or acceptable, right? Not not if there's true um, love for life built into. I mean, a, a similar extreme example you could take with Nazi Germany, right? Was it was it permissible? Was it acceptable for the for the intervention against Nazis who were committing genocide? I I think so, <laughs> and I don't know many who would disagree with that. So I, I do think there's this bias within our perception on on violence and and defense. Um, where we feel like the right thing to say uh, comes from a place of theory as opposed to having lived through marginalization. Amen. <laughs> uh, the other thing about this, of course, that is fascinating is um, if you don't have that mindset that at some level you are going to take action and you are going to protect yourself and your family, um, then your safety and well-being and that of your family is a function of my behavior only. Right, 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 yeah. And that's a scary way to live life. Um, because exactly. I know if somebody attacks me or my family, um, it's going to be a bad day for them. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I know I don't have you for that much more time. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're doing in your day-to-day uh, -day regular work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it will... There are a few different things. One, I have two young kids, so that's that's the real work. Um, that's I'm about to go pick up my daughter from preschool, and <laughs> once we hang up this call, so um, that's that's the main the main. I don't know. That's the thing that keeps me really busy. The writing is continuing, so I'm working on the next book, and that's exciting and fun. Um, but the day job is actually I'm, I'm at a think tank um, called the Aspen Institute. And I lead the religion and society program. And our focus is to help bring um, attention to issues where religion is used uh, to create inequity. Um, and that can be in all sorts of ways. And, you know, you've seen it, I've seen it, how religion can function um, to create unfairness, injustice for people, either if they're, you know, on the basis of them being religious minorities or religion being weaponized um, to hurt people, uh, extremist forms of religion and how that affects people, 
Uh, so we're, we're dealing with all kinds of aspects of religion, but I, I really love it. It's something that I feel really passionate about, and I don't see many, many folks uh, working in this area that feels so important today. Seems really important to me. Um, another area that I was sort of curious to ask you about um, is the commingling of politics and religion. Yes. I find it fascinating that there are uh, Christians who say that, quote, the other side is evil. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like when you made the comment about religion creating division, it's like, what? 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 I don't know. I'm, I've no, spent nowhere near the amount of time that you have studying religions. But is it safe to say there's no religion that teaches you to use religion to create distance and oppression and uh, oppress and hold down others? Is that is that a tenant in any of the religions that you know of? No, I mean, it's this is the funny thing about religion. I think, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't go so far as to say they all teach the same thing. But I would say that for all the religions I've studied, um, oppression and hurt are not part of the the formula right that's that's not what's being taught and at the same time every religion that i've studied is guilty of falling into that trap um of of saying hey i'm better than you uh because of where i come from that i have the answers and you don't that i i know the truth and and you all are wrong um and therefore i i need to either hurt you or convert you or whatever it is. I mean, we see it all over the place over and over again. So it's, if it wasn't so sad the way it played out and how much, how much damage it caused, it caused in the world, it'd be funny, right? Like it's, it's the classic case of, um, distortion of, of confusion of, of manipulation. I mean, whatever, whatever way it plays out, it's, it's, it's so often flipped on its head, right? Religion is, lived in the exact opposite way of how it's intended or what it is at, at its best. And so, yeah, I, I, I am both a lover of religion and also, I mean, I'm, I'm the first person to say it's, it's weird and it's troubling and it's a problem that we need to address in all kinds of ways. And, you know, for the record, Simran, I, I consider myself a religious person and I, <laughs> I identify as a Christian. <laughs> is that how you, how, I don't even know how yeah. to talk about that shit anymore. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. One thing I do tend to look at, I, I, often will pay attention as I drive by any kind of religious establishment, a church, a synagogue, any, any house of worship of any kind. And I'm always interested in, there are ones that have a sign in front of them that say something like, all are welcome. Mm-hmm. And there are many who have no such sign. And I'm always curious about that. And I'm the kind of person who will just walk into a house of worship and just yep. see who's around. And I'll, I'll talk to old rabbis or, you know, whoever. It is. I don't give a shit who it is. I'm just curious to see who's around. And am I am I welcome in this place? I have some questions. <laughs> I'm working through yep. something in my life. Yep. I'm happy to leave Same a donation, here. but I'd like to talk to somebody. Um, <laughs> and what I have found is the most powerfully religious people I've ever met are literally the most welcoming and loving people you've ever met. And there is no part of right. them that spends one second trying to do anything that feels like they're trying to convert you or manipulate you or manage you or, 
or judge you mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or anything. You, you can walk into a lot of places of worship, and I have, and you will be offered something, and somebody will greet you and sit with you and chat with you and, and whatever you want, or leave you alone or whatever it is you want to do. Um, there's a Zen Buddhist retreat here in Santa Cruz that many of us go to all the time in the Santa Cruz mountains, and you can hike, and, and you just show up there and walk around. Nobody sit. The monks don't even talk. They don't even talk to each other. <laughs> and they just smile yeah, at you yeah, yeah. and, you know, and, and so, um, I find that interesting. And yet at the same time, there are many, um, you know, religious, um, establishments that, um, I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable walking into. I, I feel like there's a, a, the opposite of all our welcome sign. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's in, in a way that's, that's kind of what I try to do in my day-to-day work. Like I want us to be in a place where we go and, you know, because of my own worldview, I'm not, I'm not sitting here being like everyone needs to convert to Sikhism and I, I don't even think everybody needs to be religious. Uh, but if we could get to a place where we move beyond the exclusivism of, of religion and get to a place where all are welcome, right? And that's on the basis of race and gender and sexual orientation and all these things, but, but also on the basis of religion. And I think our society forgets that sometimes and, and we forget to think about that it's even possible uh, to live alongside one another in a way that is as inclusive as, as we try to be in other aspects of our lives. And so, yeah, I, I, I find that both frustrating and also um, in, in opportunity uh, in opening up a conversation, looking forward and seeing where we need to go as a society. Yes. Now, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, I appreciate this. This has been a really fun conversation. I, I like how we are getting into questions and ideas that I, I, I don't often get to talk about. And so I'm, I'm feeling provoked and um, in, a, in a good way. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I, I'm, feeling like I'm, I'm walking away with, yeah, exactly. And then I'm walking away with um, ideas swirling in my head, which which is something I love and appreciate. So thanks, thanks a ton for that. Awesome. You're very welcome. And I, I would encourage you, you know, I mean, I know you're, You've got your book out and you're not an exactly a private person, but I would encourage you to do more public stuff. And the interesting thing about a podcast that is lost on a lot of people is podcasts are literally the only medium we have for uninterrupted, unedited, real dialogue. Uh, interesting. So the conversation you and I are having will get edited for sound quality and things along those lines and make it sound great. But the content of it won't be edited in any way, shape, or form. We won't cut something out. Yep. We're not going to take something you said at the end and put it at the beginning. All of those sorts of things are normal in a standard uh, interview on television or on radio, and frankly, even on podcasts. And the the phrase I hear hosts use all the time is, well, it's in room. We're just going to have to leave it there. Uh, on a podcast, mm-hmm. you don't have mm-hmm. to leave it anywhere because a five-minute po- podcast, podcast costs the same as a two-hour podcast, right? That's true. That's true. And it's it's interesting to yep. me that the medium, mobile computing, that sort of increased the ADHD of the masses is the last medium left for put everything down, go for a nice walk, do some housework, stick in your earbuds, and listen to a real conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's very true. All right. Anything else? That's it. This was fun. Simran, thanks. I enjoyed it. So thank you. Come back anytime. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, there he is, Dr. Simran Jeet Singh, and he is the author of the legendary book, 
I really enjoyed this book, The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. The Light We Give, pick it up wherever you buy legendary books. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you would share this uh, podcast on social media and tell your friends. You know, it's interesting the power of word of mouth. And if you listen to um, Lockhead on Marketing or if you've read any of our work, Category Pirates, any of the books, we talk a lot about word of mouth or WOM and that word of mouth is, was, and always will be the most powerful form of marketing. So that's why we appreciate your word of mouth and your social shares. Now, I do want to tell you a quick story. It has nothing to do with today's conversation, but recently my mom called me and she told me about um, this new show she'd been watching called Clarkson's Farm. And she went on and on and on about how hysterical it was. And I won't tell you much about it because if you're interested, you should go check it out. But it is, uh, to my mind, as funny as TV can be. Um, anyway, that's what she said to me. She told me a little bit about the show. And now I'm addicted to the show and I'm about to run out. And it just reinforced for me the power of WOM. So thank you for your WOM. <laughs> All right. We would also like to thank our friends at Clary. They are the global leader in revenue collaboration and governance. Today, most CEOs have a hard time answering the most important question in business, which is, are we going to meet, beat, or miss on revenue? Visit Clary.com, C-L-A-R-I.com today and learn how to get your whole company collaborating and governing on your revenue process. Clary.com. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided just solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network. And it does contain content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking. Please check out the I Am Known Foundation at IamKnownFoundation.org and support our recent guest, Peter Mutumbazi, uh, and foster parents, IamKnownFoundation.org. Um, we are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my favorites. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do uh, legendary technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon and the Bobus Brothers, RJ and EX, do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the win. We record in Dolby ADHD, and we record on Squadcast.fm. Don't forget Eddie Van Halen was right. Never turn your back on the ocean. Study category design. Listen to KD Lang. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest uh, regards, or should I say regrets, <laughs> go out to Andrew Tate. Sorry, Tate. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.